Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Tyson Popplestone here. This is the Pop Culture Podcast. Welcome. Thanks for stopping by to check this out today. We are joined by Greg Potter, who is coming at us straight from Sardinia. Now, Greg is a, he's an interesting guy. He's originally from Leeds. He's currently on a one-month holiday, which is why his tan looks exceptional throughout this whole video and why even as an Australian coming into summer, he's out-tanned me, which is disappointing, but it's got nothing to do with the conversation Greg is a University of Leeds graduate. He did his PhD on sleep and chronobiology. He looks at circadian rhythms and just the health benefits of getting a good night's sleep. That's simplifying what it is that he studied, but we get more into it throughout this conversation. More than that, this guy, he has a huge interest in the world of health and practical ways to get the most out of ourselves, not just physically, but mentally. He's, uh, he's referred to as a cognitive athlete which he doesn't necessarily love the label of but I think it's a fair description of what it is that he does he's constantly looking at new research and trying to unpack uncover ways that we can get more out of ourselves both mentally and physically it was a really good conversation which went down a few rabbit holes I have to have him back on to touch base on some of the other topics that we didn't quite get a chance to touch on but it was fun it was enjoyable and he's a really enjoyable guy to speak to so I hope you like this one as much as I did but for now let me introduce to to you for the first time on the Pop Culture Podcast, Greg Potter. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Man, I was just saying uh, before I hit record, it's uh, it's exciting to get a chance to jump on with you. I was excited actually before we even said too much or got too much into the world of health to ask you about your trip to Sardinia because it's a a place that I've been really keen to visit ever since I read the Blue Zones a, a couple of years ago and must have been two or three weeks ago we sort of started trying to organise a, a catch-up on here and and even then you said you were in Sardinia so it's been a nice trip. What are you, what are you up to over there? Just working remotely and I like it so much that my girlfriend and I have been out here for three years on the trot. So came... First in 2020, during the pandemic, when everyone was terrified of traveling, stayed for two months. And then last year, we split our time between Sicily and Sardinia. And here we're back out here only for another 10 days or so, unfortunately. But basically, the idea has been to extend the summer each time. And it's just such a lovely place. It's difficult to describe why that's so. But obviously, it's beautiful. There's an amazing coastline here on the West Coast, gorgeous sandy beaches that are as good as any beaches that I've been to around the world. That coastline is fringed with olive groves and vineyards. It's very green, even though it's very dry and quite hot. And it's a lovely place to be in that nobody's in a rush. Pedestrians always have right of way. You've got delicious locally grown food and at this time of year you're avoiding the heat of july and august but right now it's november the 10th and this weekend it's still going to be warm enough for us to go to the beach and enjoy a few hours so i don't mean to rub it in but it's a lovely place to be and so if you ever do get the chance to visit then i definitely recommend doing so yeah, awesome. My wife's been to Corsica, which sounds a little, uh, I'm not sure if you've been there, but it sounds similar in the sense that it's um, 
Well, I'm not sure if this is completely true for all of Sardinia, but Corsica sounds like a very – they've still got that community element to it. There's not so much commercialization. Apparently, uh, I'm not sure if it's all super smooth sailing, but apparently a lot of the local gangs and mafia make sure that there's no McDonald's or Zara's or <laughs> anything really Corsica. But, I mean, for a tourist, it sounds like a beautiful thing to experience. There's not too many places where you can uh, – wander down their main street and just not see all the shops that you're going to see on like the main street of, for my, uh, my example of, of Melbourne, like your Zara's and things like that. What is it like there in the sense of commercialization? Cause I'd, I'd heard that recently there'd been a, a little bit more of an introduction to, you know, some of the more franchised shops, which are, you know, recognized all around the world, but there still seems to be little pockets of it tucked away, which are, are relatively untouched. There's not much here. So we're in a town named Algaro and I don't think there's a McDonald's or a KFC or any of those big franchises, Starbucks, nothing like that. In different parts of the island, there might be. Different parts of the island are quite distinct. So over in the northeast around Olbia, there's a lot of foreign money, lots of Russians go there on holiday, you see big yachts and things, but here it's nothing like that. So certainly in this region, there doesn't appear to be too much of that. And as you were touching on, the people here have a very strong sense of identity. I remember walking past some graffiti last year, and it was actually, ironically, in between writing bouts for an article that was about Sardinia, and I'd just written <laughs> that they have this very strong sense of community and they don't identify as being Italian people. They see themselves as being very much their own group. And as I was walking to the gym, I walked past some graffiti that said, Sardinia is not Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to take a photo and include it in the article. But I'm not aware of there being much or any presence of mafia here it's quite different from sicily sicily has north african influences it has italian influences and so on here i think the people probably identify more as being catalan than italian and then corsica obviously technically is french but i'm guessing that they also view themselves not so much as french people but more as corsicans yeah, it's so funny. It's really interesting just to see that that sense of identity that people have. I live in a small coastal town uh, called Point Lonsdale, and it's. I think my wife and I bring the average age down here by about twenty five years because it's a place that most people come to retire. And it's really funny. Uh, they're really um, they're like territorial. They're they're like old birds. You come here, and they they don't seem overly happy to see you because it's it's their little town, and they've just claimed rights over it. But during COVID, a lot of us moved out of the city and started coming down this way. So not only have we increased their property price, but we've brought the average age down to the town. But it is, it's really noticeable to see when you go to a place like this, just how, how sort of territorial or how proud people are of whatever uh, part of the world they're in, especially when it's beautiful. I can imagine, you know, for the way you've explained Sardinia, I'd probably go there for a couple of weeks and start feeling territorial myself. So <laughs> maybe not too much of a surprise. What was your introduction to the place? Because you're based in the UK, uh, I'm guessing, still based on the accent. I mean, it doesn't sound like that been, that's been washed away at all. No, <laughs> no, I still live in the UK for most of the year, but I'm fortunate in that I can be quite itinerant with my work because I'm self-employed and 90 
five plus percent of my work I can do remotely. But introduction was simply that I had family that had been out here and enjoyed it. And we were thinking about places from where we could work remotely at the end of the summer. And Sardinia appealed to me personally because it fits so many of the things that I'm interested in. So obviously it has this mythical status being a blue zone and there's controversy related to that. And if people are interested, then they should read a paper that's published by Saul Newman, who I think is one of your fellow Australians a year or two ago, which called into question the veracity of birth certificates here. So I'm not too sure about how rigorous some of the blue zone science is, but it's a compelling story, that's for sure. But then also, obviously, it's beautiful. I love the natural world. And there's also very nice scuba diving around the coastline here. A couple of parts of Europe where you've got excellent cave systems. So around Gozo in Malta, there are lovely caves. And here there are too. And so I thought, well, I can do some scuba diving while I'm out here. I can enjoy the beaches. I can find out more about the culture. And obviously you still have Italian food, lots of sunshine, which is why I'm strangely brown for this time of year, especially for an English person. <laughs> and uh, it was the culmination of those factors that drew us here. But immediately we knew how much we would like it because we landed that first morning having left the dreary London Stansted airport where it was raining. And a few hours later, it's 10 a.m. in the morning here, we find out that there's a beautiful beach 100 metres from where we're staying. And we're around the corner from one of the two best gelato shops in the area. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ultimate win. Hey, your tan didn't escape my notice either. I was... Uh... Very disappointed as an Australian getting ready to go into summer that a, a British man has outdone me in the tan department. So obviously <laughs> that that sun's working a, an absolute treat for you. I'm guessing that there's there's a, a whole heap of outdoor time taking place here at the moment. I was going to ask what uh, what are you getting up to in and around your work? Like what are you filling your days with when you're uh, you know when you when you're not researching or studying or writing? Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time at the beach, <laughs> and I can move my working day around according to when I'd like to work for the most part. I'm very fortunate in that respect. And so while most people work something like nine to five, my work doesn't look anything like that. And that's in part because my natural sleep-wake cycle is quite unusual. I am an early bird to the nth degree. And so the clocks have just changed here, which means that most people are very happy because they get an hour more sleep in the morning before the alarm goes off. But for me, it just means that I'm even more of a freak relative to the rest of society. And I'm now waking up naturally at half four in the morning. And so what I tend to do is I tend to have a chunk of work shortly after waking. And then I'll go out to the gym late morning. I'll do a little bit more work after that. And then around the time of the so-called post-lunch slump, which I always say it's never really related to lunch. It's actually because there's a dip in the drive to be awake that results from your body clock around that time of day. I know that cognitively I'm not going to be my sharpest. And so I'll typically walk down to the beach at that time of day and just get in the water and try and be present while I'm there and enjoy my surroundings. I might do a little bit of reading. 
And then after that, I'll come back and do a bit more work before dinner and then wind down in the evening. So lots of time in nature and then weekends still for the most part, spending time at the beach, eating nice food, arguably eating too much ice cream, although I'm not sure that that's possible. <laughs> and, and the occasional beach cocktail because food here is quite expensive, but alcohol is very inexpensive. So you, you can get an Aperol spritz or a Campari spritz or a Chinar spritz for about five euros, which is half what you'd pay in England. And Sounds set- dangerous. Yeah, and the, the setting is slightly nicer too. So it's it's good fun. Oh man, it was a. Uh, you mentioned that the the way that you're working at the moment, independently, remotely, do your, doing your own thing. It's got a whole heap of flexibility that comes with that. And I'm doing something similar. Uh, I'm a I'm a running coach. I've got an online membership that is aimed at running based sports, and uh, you know built that up over the last couple of years. And one of the things that I sort of struggled with as I I was a teacher before then, a sports teacher, and I'd gradually sort of phased down my teaching hours and and increased my uh, you know, working for myself hours. And it's interesting as a guy who's, um, you know, I'm trying to use the the day as well as I can, maybe like every 35-year-old uh, <laughs> Western person with a, a desire to do well in uh, business. It's it, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess. Obviously, you want to get the work done, but at the same time, it you can put so many rigid structures around yourself that, you know, the the beauty of working for yourself can quickly lose its appeal if you just make yourself a, you know, a prisoner of your own desk rather than a prisoner of some corporate desk. And that's something that I've been trying to navigate myself recently. And um, I actually had a chat with my wife this afternoon because it's, uh, what are you, you guys are, you guys are this morning, it's Thursday evening in Melbourne right now, Thursday morning in Sardinia. Yeah. So I was saying that I, I still feel a little guilty at times taking a couple of hours away from work, despite the fact there's not really anything else that needs to be done. How do you how do you navigate that? Was that something that you ever had to navigate, or was it a fairly easy transition for you? I have been very independent in my work since my PhD, and I argue that my PhD was much more self driven than most PhDs are. And so, since two thousand fifteen or sixteen, the second or third year of my PhD. I spent most of my time working from home and initially that transition was difficult and I was also very busy at that time because I was doing my PhD but I was also working as content director for a US-based digital health company named HumanOS and so I found myself spending lots of time doing the dishes and then redoing the dishes and (laughs) seemingly doing anything that would not be actual work but I've now had several years to get used to that type of working environment. And obviously for a lot of people, their hands have been forced by the COVID pandemic into this type of remote work. So I think there's probably been a relatively steep learning curve for lots of individuals and businesses the last three years or so, but I'm used to it now. And also I'm very interested in my personal productivity in mental health. And so I spend a lot of time reading research related to those things and also have worked with several companies on those subjects. And so what I try and do is I, I try and apply the principles that I discover as I read more of the relevant scientific literature and then find what works within the context of my own life. But personally, the biggest struggle is probably 
social isolation, especially somewhere like this, because neither myself nor my girlfriend speaks Italian very well at all. Nothing like fluently. I probably have a hundred words in my arsenal, maybe 150. And that's fine, but it means that I can't have an interesting conversation with any local people around here. And because their identity is so strong, not that many people speak fluent English either. So it's actually quite rare that we meet an individual or a couple that we can communicate with in that way. And so a lot of the time that I spend speaking to friends and family right now is online. So that can be tricky. But then the other thing that you're getting at is making clear divisions between work and non-work life. And that can be very problematic, especially when it comes to things like sleep. So take the example of somebody who, because of the COVID pandemic, initially was working from her bedroom and now works remotely three days a week and continues to work from her bedroom. If that's the case, then you might start or she might start to associate her bedroom with work and with feelings of work-related stress, especially if she's lying on her bed using her laptop, working on an Excel file for work or a Google Doc or what have you. And so it's important to have some of those structures that you alluded to in place with respect to how you use your time. And I say that recognizing that actually enacting those structures can be quite difficult. But I think there are some quite simple things that people can do to that end. And if they practice them on a regular basis, then hopefully they become habitual. And also simply understanding the importance of creating those divisions can be enough to nudge some people into making some changes that ultimately benefit them. Yeah, yeah, really well said, man. You were saying that uh, some of the research in the productivity sphere has really caught your attention and it's something that you're always practicing and, you know, adjusting in your own life. Is there anything at the moment that, uh, well, maybe practicing is the wrong word based on the, uh, for those of you just listening, it was a little shrug of the shoulders and a slight guilty look. <laughs> but um, uh, maybe practicing was the wrong year. Maybe trying to implement from time to time. I won't put words in your mouth. I'll let you clear that up. But um, is there anything at the moment that uh, that's caught your attention that you're, that you're working on? I spent more time looking at circadian rhythms in different cognitive functions recently because there's a lot of talk, especially in podcastistan, about things like ultradian rhythms in cognition and what the best times of day are for different tasks and so on. And I think that some of the views that are being put forward are nonsensical based on my experience reading the scientific literature, working with people and being a, a cognitive athlete of sorts myself, I say that and immediately feel awkward as if I'm making it out as if I have high cognitive function. What I mean by that is that I'm a knowledge worker and my work and my ability to be productive depends on my ability to think clearly. And so if you look 
at that research, it tends to show a few things. One of them is unsurprisingly that the more time that you spend doing a given task, the more errors you're likely to make. It's a time on task effect. And that time on task effect is actually exacerbated if you're doing hard cognitive work during your biological nighttime, which is that period when your body is optimized for resting and fasting, typically coincides with the sleep period. But that's very relevant to, say, shift workers who often have to be up and active during their biological night times, say if they're working night shifts, but most of the time they're on a day shift schedule. Another factor is one that's influenced by your body's clock, your circadian system, which programs these roughly 24-hour rhythms in different aspects of your biology and hence behavior too. And what you tend to find is that different cognitive functions, so for example, your ability to pay attention, and you can actually subdivide that into multiple categories, but your ability to pay attention tends to have a couple of peaks each day. So one of them is not that long after waking. So if you wake up at 7 a.m., a lot of people will have a morning peak in attention between roughly 9 a.m. and midday. Then there's this lunchtime dip that I mentioned earlier, which seems to apply to most aspects of cognition. And that low point is often between about 1 and 3 p.m. for people with a relatively typical sleep-wake schedule. Coincides with the hottest time of day, which probably has some evolutionary significance in that if you think about people living in conditions in which they don't have a roof over their head, if the environment is hot, then it would behoove them to get out of the sun and it's damaging rays at that time of day. And that's probably why the body's clock has that dip in alertness around the hottest time of day. And then there's this second peak in different aspects of cognition in the mid-afternoon to early evening. So for a lot of people, that's going to be between about 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. or so. But those peaks are probably somewhat modified by the person's chronotype. And a chronotype is just colloquially whether you are more of a morning lark or a night owl. Do you tend to feel best in the morning or later in the day? And if, like me, you're a morning lark, then you'll probably feel that you're most productive during that morning pre-lunchtime slump bout than the afternoon to evening bout. Whereas if you're a night owl, you might feel that you work best relatively late in the day. So I think understanding those rhythms in executive function, so your ability to plan, carry out, monitor how you're doing and work and adjust the work you're doing according to how you're getting on can be quite instructive when it comes to trying to be more productive at work. And you can also take that information and consider it in relation to other aspects of your lifestyle. So what are your family constraints? So do you have to take your kids to school, pick them up from school, for instance? Is it important to you to have 
dinner with your spouse, whatever it might be. But if you can understand something about the underlying biology, then you can start to make some changes to your daily schedule to try and get more out of your day. So I think some of that's helpful. And then a couple of other things that I'll touch on. And, and these aren't really things that I've been particularly interested in recently, but they're relevant nonetheless. So one is the cognitive load of a given task is going to influence how well you do in it and how long you can do that task for. And cognitive load depends on a few different variables. So one of them, for instance, is how complex the task is. But while you can't control things like how complex the task is, you can influence some aspects of cognitive load. One of them being task switching. Each time you switch tasks, there's a residue in which your mind is still somewhat on what's just happened previously. And so the less you switch between tasks, the more likely you are to be able to do good work in that particular task. And so simple ways of helping you stay on task, such as website blocking apps. So for example, I have a Mac and I use self-control on my laptop and getting certain things off your phone. Let's say that you just use social media in a cursory way. It's not really important to your business, but you feel like it helps you stay in touch with people and you enjoy periodically scrolling through it. If that's the case, then you probably don't want to spend that much time on it in total. You're not going to look back on your life when you're in hospital at the age of 85 and think, I wish I'd spent more time on Instagram. But you do want to keep using it in some ways. And so if that's the case, you might take Instagram off your phone and then download it once a week or just use it on your laptop or computer and then block yourself from it the rest of the time. And that way you both hold on to your ability to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world, but also it doesn't detract from your work and it doesn't lead you into that situation in which you're looking back and thinking that you wish that you spent your time differently. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it's, uh, social media is a great one to touch on because as a bloke who's very interested in this particular scene, just well, in, uh, productivity and using your time well, you would look at my screen time and my Instagram time, especially the last couple of days, you go, you don't care. You're not interested. You just, uh, and I think they've, they've sucker punched me or it's tapped into a, a part of so many of our sort of psyches that just, it gets you excited. And at the moment I've been keeping up to date with the, midterm elections in the US and I keep dancing from state to state <laughs> just to see the updated results. Not that it plays any impact on me over here, but it's just a, it's almost like a sporting event to me at the moment. So I've, uh, I've been jumping on and uh, I think I deleted Instagram three times from my phone today, but it's just too easy to reinstall. So I need to have some. Yeah. Like a, how do you, uh, how do you structure that yourself? You mentioned that uh, one good way might just be to delete it and have a look once a week of uh when I, when I get disciplined with it and I make the decision that, okay, I'm actually going to be good, I'm relatively good. But when I get a little slack and take the finger off the button a bit, I go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on it again and it's only 9.27 in the morning. Uh, I like the idea of having a look at it once a week 
I read Cal mm. Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, a couple of years ago, and that was really helpful to me. And I, I need to go through some of the notes that I wrote from that because I remember for about three or four months after that, I, I made some serious changes in the way that I actually used all forms of technology. But then without that constant attention, it sort of just crept back in and um, <laughs> took over yeah. too much of my important attention to that. Yeah, what, what do you do with, uh, with social media and just making sure it doesn't infiltrate every part of your day? So tangent, I'd recommend that people read Cal Newport stuff and you can also tune into his podcast for free if you want to do so. But books such as Deep Work are really helpful if you're interested in improving your productivity at work. I certainly don't agree with all of it by any means, but I think that most of it is on point. Now, with that said, I would not hold myself up as a perfect example of how to go about these things. A, because I use social media somewhat for work and i think it's probably overall been helpful in generating some work and helping spread ideas that i think are important but i'm also not regular enough with it and i don't give it enough thought and i'm not systematic enough in how i approach it to actually have become any good at using social media to the effects that i would like so bear that in mind and also like you I will go through phases in which I'm good and say use it once a week and I only download it, log in when I have something to post with other phases where I'll check it early in the day and then I'll go back to it and check it 10 times subsequently that day. But I notice certain patterns in my use of it. So one is that if I check it early in the day, then... I often end up checking it lots of time over the remainder of the day. And so I recognize that if I have a difficult day ahead in which I have lots to get done, it makes no sense for me whatsoever to even think about it that day. And so I try and be good about when I use it and specifically the days of the week that I will download it and use it. Another is, and I think this is something that Newport pushes for, he advocates this 30-day declutter in which people remove non-essential apps from their phones and so on and think about the ways that they use their time and then invest themselves in using their time in ways that they feel enrich their lives. So a lot of people will go through that period and they'll spend more time reading and they'll spend more time in nature and so on. But like you, I think a lot of people do that for a month and they'll learn something about themselves and then they'll be good for three or four months and then slowly they'll gravitate back to their old habits. And that's certainly something that I've noticed in myself too. But I do think that having four weeks or a month in which you do something like that is a valuable experience. And I've done that several times. I normally do that about twice a year with social media and I'll just post something to the effect of I'm taking a break from social media for a month. If you need to get in touch, then there's a contact form on my website. The difficulty with that though is that if you've been trying to build your online presence for whatever reason, let's say that you're an author and you need to sell books or you're a podcaster and you want to increase the number of downloads, if you take a month off twice a year and you don't already have a huge following, then you might just find that when you return to social media, if you post something, you're just not anywhere near the top of someone's feed. 
And so all of a sudden there's less interaction with what you put out there and it, it takes a bit of time to get back to your previous state, even if the number of followers hasn't really changed, for instance. So there are trade-offs, but I think a lot of this comes down to being mindful of how you use your time. And with that in mind, lots of practices that have become more and more popular in recent times can be really helpful. And I've had a mindfulness meditation practice since 2014, start my PhD. And that has been instrumental in helping me catch myself doing things that I don't actually really like doing. They're compulsions more, more than things that I enjoy. And I think there are some other things that you can do to expedite the process of becoming more mindful. Some of these are controversial. I don't think they'll be controversial in two decades time. But for example, some of the research that's come out looking at the use of different psychedelics, such as psilocybin and LSD on trait mindfulness is fascinating because you can give people two moderate to high dose of psilocybin, say 20 to 30 milligrams of psilocybin. And then there are standardized ways of assessing mindfulness inventories just questionnaires that you can give people and you see quite large changes in how mindful people are and how mindful people feel they are after this type of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy or even just use of the psychedelics alone and so i think that that combination of psychedelics with mindfulness is is one that's particularly interesting and there have been a small number of studies so far there was one in which they gave people psychedelics during a meditation retreat and then looked subsequently at the effects of the psychedelic on aspects of their quality of life several months later and compared that to controls who just did the meditation retreat and had a placebo and they found quite dramatic improvements in many aspects of quality of life. And then there was another study published by Roland Griffiths and his colleagues that looked at psilocybin use in conjunction with a spiritual practice that included meditation, but also journaling and some other things. And the results of those are dramatic enough that I think that they, they could be really helpful interventions. And if people are more mindful, I just think they're going to use their time better down the line. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone should be taking magic mushrooms and meditating, but it's just an example in which if, if you, can train your brain to notice what's going on in the world and, and to not necessarily react reflexively to those thoughts and feelings and instead insert a pause and then choose your path. All of a sudden you're going to be able to think, yeah, I'm tempted to pick up my phone now and look at my Instagram feed, but I don't want to do that. That's not, that's not helping me in any way. That's not actually, improving my life i've got these other things that i need to attend to and so i'm going to do those instead so it's a very very long way of saying that i don't know but i, I do think that if you go through these periods in which you're having some time off those things and reassessing your relationship to them as well as nurturing your ability to pay attention to the present moment then you might quite substantially change how you use things like Instagram, Twitter, and so on. Yeah. 
It's a really good point. And I um, inconsistently, I'm going to be honest, the last couple of months, we've uh, just a month ago, we, we had our second boy. And the Congrats. most amazing, thank you, brother, most amazing <laughs> thing ever. I feel like it's the, it's the typical parent response. It is, it is genuinely the most, have you got kids? No. No, no. For, for me, it's genuinely the most amazing experience that I'm so grateful to have. But from a, but you feel bad even saying but after that because I used to hear parents do that and I was like, ah, you don't appreciate what you've got. You're a terrible parent. And now I'm getting a taste of my own medicine going, oh, okay, I see what you mean. I love my kids with all my heart, but I also care about my health routine. And you keep waking up at 2 a.m. and this is really stuffing up, stuffing up my, uh, my recoveries. It's, uh, it's, been an, uh, uh, it's been something that's impacted, obviously, the consistency of um, you know a mindfulness meditation practice of my own. And that's potentially just a, a, a prioritization is that a word a, a priorities thing or maybe just let it slip but i noticed that when i'm on a um a, a consistent routine like that that pause that you get before the just that addictive behavior often allows you to make some far more effective choices and i think it doesn't just relate to me in the way that i use technology but even the way that i speak to my wife like i think if uh, if you had a look at how short i've been the last month in comparison to potentially how should I've been for the last couple of years. The last month hasn't been, a, <laughs> hasn't been the most impressive, but um, it, 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 is, it is something that uh, I think I just feel like I'm making a big excuse as to why I haven't been meditating. But what I'm trying to say is uh, yeah, I, I've noticed the, the benefits of that practice in my own life, but it's, I, I guess the consistency of it's the big thing as well, because you can do anything well for a couple of weeks, but then you've been doing it for eight years now and the improvements and developments and, the skill set that you develop through eight years of consistent work is a lot more than what you're going to get in a couple of months of sort of inconsistent practice. Yeah, I'll mention a few things. One is that if you have a background of insufficient sleep, so you, you just had your second child and that has disrupted your sleep, you've been waking frequently during the night and your sleep's are more fragmented, but you've also lost some sleep. That means that your performance will probably drop off more during the day, that time on task effect I mentioned earlier, than had you been well rested. And so in that context, I think that even if you're a night owl, it might make sense to prioritize your most important work early in your day, recognizing that lapses in performance are probably going to come on more quickly within the day and also there might be a higher number of those lapses over the course of the day another idea is that i don't think that you actually need to spend that much total time meditating necessarily it's tricky in that some people feel they need several minutes to feel grounded at the start of a meditation session and to come to their senses. But if you're very particular and recognize that you are time limited, then I think that you can teach yourself to reach that mindful state more quickly than if you were doing longer sessions. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're just doing five minute long sessions, I think that's better than nothing. Another is that people often think about mindful practices as comprising formal meditation sessions in which you're sat down upright with your eyes closed for 10 plus minutes at a time but 
the whole point of the mindfulness meditation practice is that you're training yourself to be more mindful in your life in general. And so you don't want there to be a bright line between your meditation sessions and the rest of your life. And actually, I think there's enormous value to including things like walking meditations. And so let's say that you have two 20-minute walking bouts each day where you're by yourself and maybe normally you'd be listening to a podcast or whatever. You can do a 10 to 20-minute walking meditation during one of those. And I actually think that that's one of the great limitations of traditional, traditional mindfulness programs by having the mindfulness sessions focus on seated meditations you're not really teaching yourself to transfer that mindfulness into the rest of your life and so doing a variety of different mindful activities mindful eating mindful walking mindful dishwashing whatever it might be can help you be more mindful throughout the whole range of different activities that you complete each day Mm. are you trying to meditate for a certain amount of time or for you is it all right you've reached a, a certain state of you know for lack of a better term just, just peace or, or, or calmness or are you trying to reach a state of mind or are you trying to reach a certain time limit or is it a combination of both yeah again to be clear i'm, <laughs> I'm no meditation master <laughs> by any means i i don't want to come across as if i think that i'm some expert in meditation so just want to get that out of the way but i typically meditate for 10 minutes early in the day mm-hmm. right now i also spend a little bit of time journaling before that too because i'm just trying to keep on track in changing certain patterns of thinking and behaving that i don't like mm. and so typically i'll spend a little bit of time journaling at the start of the day which will include a gratitude component which sounds so cheesy i feel like a cliched millennial when i say that but <laughs> It's just a brief gratitude practice. Again, the, the research on this is, is interesting. I don't think that something like gratitude diary has a dramatic effect on your feelings of gratitude or your psychological well-being, but I think it probably does have a small effect on average. And then I'll do that 10-minute mindfulness session. And for much of the last few years, that's pretty much all that I've done each day, coupled with reading about meditation and listening to talks about it and so on. But recently, I've also started to incorporate more of that type of walking meditation. So for me, a lot of the early seated meditation sessions that I do focus on concentration, so my ability to pay attention, whereas most of those walking ones that I do are meta sessions, meta being loving kindness, an attempt to build your capacity to be a compassionate person. And so it just involves repeating certain phrases to yourself, such as, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, and so on. And then as you pass people when you're walking, you might wish the same fit things for those others too. And, and that goes for both humans and for animals and other living creatures. So... I like that combination because it focuses on developing certain aspects of my mind that I would like to improve. I think your ability to pay attention is enormously important to pretty much any cognitive task you're going to do and to avoid distraction and to override impulses that will ultimately be counterproductive. 
but then also I, I think that the world needs more compassion mm. and I think if the powers that be in, in particular the individuals in powerful positions were more compassionate then the world would be much better and you mentioned the midterm elections earlier I suppose those are a perfect case in point of that because there's a a, a great big orange goblin in the room and <laughs> I hope that he he doesn't doesn't return to to power, but it's a, it's a real possibility. And and you look at somebody like that, and the the amount of harm that can ripple out of what he does, and and it's quite alarming, especially against the backdrop of what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine, and what's going on with the climate and so on. It, it can all be a little bit soul destroying if you're not careful. Which is one more reason why you need to be particular about the information that you curate each day. So not only whether you're using social media, which tends to center on things that are ultimately quite banal, like puppies and pictures of people posing at nice beaches, but also things that are more consequential, such as the world news. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. It's interesting you say that because, uh, I was over in America recently, and I was I was staying in a fairly conservative part of town. And um, one of the one of the interesting things was just to get a little bit of a feel for the atmosphere in the air. And obviously, it was a like where I was staying was quite quite conservative, quite a Republican area. But even a couple of people that I spoke to over there at the moment were saying that yet yeah, for a maybe a, a a bit of a middle finger to the woke left, it'd be nice to have a guy like Trump come back into it into power but a lot of people I felt I don't know if it was a lot of people but I certainly noticed there was a sentiment towards especially for conservative voters towards uh DeSantis and maybe he him being a bit more of a reasonable candidate and I'm getting myself into a a conversation here that I've got no right speaking about really because I don't know enough but it was just interesting to it was interesting just to hear even some people that you would have thought were, were front and center with fist pumps for Trump were now saying okay well maybe in terms of healing and in terms of actually getting forward as a nation, maybe a, a, such a divisive character wouldn't be the best bet. But then there's uh, still a couple who are going, no, no, well, I'm not really worried about divisiveness anymore. I just I just want him back because it would be hilarious to watch. And granted, for me, that was the first thing that got me interested in US politics because I felt like I was just watching a bloke like Conor McGregor and <laughs> make it like a sport. And I was mind-blown because especially in Australia, the news sources were laughing at him for, for so often and that could something to say about not taking Australian journalism so seriously because there's certainly a lot of opinions that are are not backed up but it was mind-blowing to me initially that he was elected because all these people that I was told to trust or that I did trust for so many years were so so wrong with their predictions of of what it would uh what it would look like it was a it was a strange thing to live through and I was to live through yeah, it really was. And again, I, I know nothing about US politics. So, so just want to, want to preface what I'm about to say with that. But I remember watching a documentary years ago. It's a brilliant documentary, if you haven't seen it. It's by Adam Curtis. It's called Hypernormalization. And basically, he ransacked the BBC archives that contain, obviously, hundreds of thousands of hours or millions of hours of footage and he's got this amazing knack of compiling compelling footage into 
interesting and thought-provoking narratives. And hypernormalization is one of the ultimate examples of that. But within that film, there's that now very famous moment when Barack Obama is giving a speech and Donald Trump is sat in the audience. And he, he just tears into Trump in a, in a way that is in some ways tactful, but in retrospect, you watch that moment and you think that is the moment when Donald Trump had the fire lit under him to become the next US president. And so it's both funny, but also excruciating because of everything that's unfolded since then. So <laughs> I, I hope you're right about the sentiment within the Republican camp now. But like you were saying, I find it difficult knowing who to trust when it comes to the news. And I'm, I don't want to be conspiratorial at all. And I think that some news sources are objectively better than others. But it's also important to bear in mind that even the ones that you frequent that you think are generally helpful sources of information are biased. So for example, I typically use the BBC and The Economist for news, but they're both biased. And I remember feeling that vividly when speaking to a couple of friends I have who were Russian around the time of the start of the war in Ukraine. And obviously they were being fed completely different information from what we were being fed over here. And my knee-jerk reflex was that's all disinformation and it's absolute nonsense. It makes no sense. And I still feel that way now, but I also recognize that some of the information that we were being fed at the time was, was surely way off the mark too. Mm. Yeah, it is good. It's a, I guess it comes back to that, just an awareness or, or that ability to be able to take something in. And that's one thing that I'm trying to focus on a little more myself is just that emotional response to things that I disagree with initially, because there's been so many times now where I'll have an emotional response. And then when things calm down, I'll look back and go, oh, I was actually very wrong. And whatever the emotion uh, that crept up to try and defend my own attitude was it had no right being there because had anyone listened to me I probably would have led him further off the path but it's uh it's certainly difficult and for whatever reason there's certain uh, news news shows or tv programs over here that I go to sometimes just to trigger that and go all right let's see how how effectively I handle it tonight and too often I fail miserably and I go I didn't <laughs> I didn't need that experience but um yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a worldwide thing, isn't it? Sometimes I, I forget that we're not just in our own echo chamber in Australia. It's a, uh, I guess it's just a corporate media response. And it's, it's also much easier, I guess, to just have something in black and white and present your point of view and present why you're right and um, defend your tribe a little more than it is to have a difficult conversation with someone you completely disagree with that might yeah. be very intelligent. That's what I found so interesting about COVID over here because I'm not sure... I'm sure it was the same all around the world, but particularly in Australia, or where my state, Victoria, Melbourne, we had a, I think we're up there competing for the longest lockdown of all time. And I've got friends on both sides of the camp who were, some were like, yeah, no, this is exactly what we need to be doing. Then other people would go, hang on a second. Like there seems to be other places around the world who are doing just fine and taking the exact opposite approach. And it was a really emotionally charged time. And, and, and I, I got caught in this too many times, but it was a 
time I thought where I didn't really want to hear the other side, if I'm being honest, so often because I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be right. But yeah. I've got such a respect for people and you strike me as one of these kind of characters that maybe your emotion doesn't necessarily, maybe the emotion flies up in you that you have a particular stance, but some people have this really good ability to be able to go, okay, well, there's an emotion, but if I can get beyond that, there's a point that this person who may very well be smarter than me has to make. I listened to, I listened to Rick Rubin on, on Joe Rogan's podcast the other day. He's a music producer um, and he's worked with the, the who's who, Jay-Z, Kanye West, uh, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. They're just a couple of the names. And one of the things he said was so often a group will come to him and ask for his advice uh, on a particular song and they'll have particular ideas and particular directions that they want to take it. And one of the most difficult things for him early in his career was to go, okay, well, that's a terrible idea. That Your idea sucks. I don't want to do that. And he said, but, but too many times the idea turned out to be the best idea for the album and he quickly learnt that the best way to create an amazing album is to at least hear the ideas of every single person in the band that he's working with, what they view it as, what they see it's going to be, um, what they would like this album to become. And I hear a person like that speak and I'm like, oh, that, that seems to be the healthiest way to approach any emotionally charged conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're again being a bit flattering to, to me, <laughs> just given how chaotic I know my mind is. But I have listened I, to a few of your podcasts, so you're, you're very consistent, if that's not true. You very consistently present yourself well. <laughs> if, uh, your mind does feel a little all over the shop. Thanks for that. But I, I think some of that is just overriding all of the nonsense that comes up in my mind. But I, I think recognizing that everything that arises will pass is helpful which probably sounds quite new agey and spiritual to a lot of people but i do think that objectively that is true and then also having experiences that teach you some humility and identify how frequently we're wrong mm. can be very instructive so the example that comes to mind is just doing a PhD it's one of those instances and there are many of these in which the more that you learn the more that you realize you don't know someone made a really apt analogy on a podcast that I was listening to a few months ago and they said that it's a bit like wading out into the ocean as you get deeper and deeper into the ocean you realize just how vast it is and so with that in mind, I might have really strong opinions about things, but I also try and remember that I'm so frequently wrong about them. And coming back to the context that you mentioned and echo chambers, I'm not very good at this, but I do think there's great value in trying to expose yourself to different echo chambers. So let's say that you are a proponent of a vegan diet. I think it's probably valuable to look at some of the arguments that are being put forward by the omnivores and even by the carnivores. I think a, a lot of the arguments that are put forward by the latter category are rubbish, but <laughs> yeah. I, don't think, I don't think they all are. Yeah. And, and I also believe that there are plenty of people who at least in the short term benefit from that type of dietary approach. 
and obviously this has all been front dead center in people's minds in the COVID-19 pandemic because there are so many things that have been enormously divisive and I think that something like lockdowns or vaccinations are perfect examples of that myself I'm eminently pro-vaccination but I also recognize that I haven't spent much time in the last year looking at vaccine-related data. And so I actually don't know that much about the side effects of vaccinations and adverse effects that have been reported or that might be being withheld in recent times. And certainly my initial impression was that with respect to COVID-19 vaccinations, in particular the mRNA vaccines like Moderna and Pfizer, the risk of adverse events was very low and it was an absolute no-brainer that the pros outweighed the cons for all but maybe a very small minority of people, namely young males, just in that there was an increased risk of myocarditis that was identified early on and the risk of serious adverse consequences from getting COVID-19 in healthy young boys probably wasn't very high at all. So if I was a parent, then I imagine that I would have at least thought twice about getting my 10-year-old boy vaccinated, especially if he'd already had a natural infection. But for the rest of us, being vaccinated to me was not something I had to give second thought to. But I'm not the one that's, that's pouring through that scientific literature. And as I touched on, I, I don't know that much about the recent data that have come out, but I think when we have these different echo chambers it's so easy to to fall prey to misinformation and disinformation mm. and just constantly surrounding yourself with people who have similar perspectives on things is enormously limiting in terms of your own growth i think there's there's so much to learn from being exposed to different cultures and attitudes and perspectives again i'm saying all of this recognizing that i'm not nearly as good at that exposure as I would like to be. I, I tend to align myself with people whose opinions I really respect and people who seem to be reasonable individuals. Mm. But I should probably spend a bit more time following people with quite different perspectives on things, but also retaining some critical thinking capacity. And, and that's something that I think some people have a lot more of naturally than others, mm. but it's also something that you can nurture and spending lots of time doing things like reading scientific papers is definitely one way of going about that. But there are other paths to the same outcome. Yeah, it's a really good point. I was, uh, the vaccination one was, was interesting here in Australia um, or all over the world because there, there's just so many, from my perspective, I felt like I was listening to so many people who they both seem so much smarter than me. I'd listen and talk to them talk about research and, I've listened to him talk about data and you're probably like with your PhD and a lot of the work that you've done a lot more familiar with what's a, a credible research search document and what's not. But I would listen to someone uh, who was pro-vaccination and they would state their case and I'd go, okay, well, obviously that's, that's the best way forward. And then I would hear someone on the other side of the fence and I'd go, well, I think you just counted all the points that I thought were credible. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the best way forward. The, the thing that upset me, especially here was, 
there was no genuine conversation around what was the best way forward. It was just, all right, this is, you have to do this. It's now a mandate. And if you don't do it, you're an anti-vaxxer, which was untrue for a lot of people that I knew for sure. I, I knew some um, really deep thinking, lovely people who were very apprehensive and hesitant to get the vaccination just until there was a little more information available on, you know, its effectiveness and, um, you know, the health risks and things associated. So I felt as though I was a little bit too close to the front line with some lovely people just to look at Channel 7 News and go, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> these guys just, they're conspiracy theorists. But it was it was definitely a really difficult time to, to navigate, especially with the, as you mentioned, just the emotional charge that, that came with so many on both sides of that conversation. Yeah, 100%. And there are a few factors that make the whole process of discerning good information from bad information or more difficult. One of them, and this got quite a lot of airtime around the time that it came out, is that false information seems to propagate more quickly through social networks than true information. And that's based on a high-profile study that was published in one of the best scientific journals in the world. And obviously, categorizing false information and real information or the truth is difficult. And you have to keep that in mind when you're assessing the veracity of the claims that were put forward in that study. But I suspect that there is something true that to that. And part of the difficulty with this stuff is as a non-scientist or non-expert in a given subject you listen to people who appear to be intelligent talk about them these subjects and a lot of it just washes over you they're using long words that you think you understand but on further inspection you might not really understand and there's so much infotainment nowadays people yeah. listening to these enormously long podcasts with people who come across as being very erudite really smart individuals and a, a lot of those podcasts basically contain information that's either not accurate or ultimately it's not particularly important when you consider the totality of things that are interacting and the the relative importance of different determinants of certain outcomes whether that's your health or something else so it's really hard trying to make sense of the world when you're getting all of these conflicting opinions about things that you don't have any real background in and i regularly feel that way about certain subjects so I'll, I'll hear people talk about the various subject matters and i have a cursory interest in them so let's take an example of decentralized consensus mechanisms like blockchains but also my my knowledge of those isn't deep and it's not particularly broad either and there's all of this jargon that these people use, which makes trying to develop your interest in those subjects quite a uphill battle initially. Mm -hmm. 
And I just think there are many instances of that type of thing in, in people's lives nowadays. And one of the difficulties, of course, is that many of those subjects ultimately are quite consequential when it comes to what happens in society at large. Yeah. And I guess it comes under the umbrella of this productivity thing as well. There's only 24 hours in a day. And if you're trying to invest any time in your health and any time in uh, your family and any time <laughs> just getting out and about, that leaves about an hour 25 to do your research on every other topic that's being hotly debated, which is, which is really, really difficult. And that's, what, that's why I think in, in many cases, I'm almost hesitant to say this, but it often makes a lot of sense to defer to authority so take the example of COVID vaccines. Anthony Fauci is a decent person. He's a tremendous scientist. He knows thousands or millions of times more about many relevant subjects than I do. And my impression of him is that he's sincere. So it's early in the pandemic. I'm going to happily defer to his perspective rather than listening to a journalist, anti-vaxxer, talk on a big podcast about this treatment for COVID and its potential utility based on a few terribly done studies. So I, I think that in many cases, people should listen to people that they perceive to be experts. I know that in a minority of instances, that can ultimately go the wrong way. But in that situation in which you only have so many hours in the day, it's a good way to go. And also take the example of elections. I, at this stage in my life, would probably happily defer to a carefully curated group of experts who themselves decide the best way forward when it comes to various policies and even when it comes to selecting appropriate individuals in positions of power, obviously there are all sorts of enormous problems with the whole election process. And ultimately I don't think that the whole election process is optimized to select the best candidate for the job. But imagine a situation in which you, you have a, a panel of very highly esteemed people from different roles within society, different stakeholders, and they achieve some consensus about the best next step forward. It strikes me that the likelihood of them reaching a conclusion that is adaptive is higher than asking everyone in the general population, many of whom are reading unhelpful sources of information that are full of inaccuracies. But I know a lot of people push back against that and call it undemocratic or whatever. It's just a perspective that I might change my mind on, but right now makes some sense to me. Yeah, it's it's difficult as well because one of the things I, I like the idea of being able to appeal to authority and you know trust to uh, trust. Well, in the example that you gave, like to trust a guy like Anthony Fauci, who's obviously been in the scene for a long time. But one of the things I found a little challenging was just what well, we with that in particular and um, was just trying to navigate what information that was being shared that was 
true and because uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say is what I find difficult at times is to go okay well I want to trust this person based on the fact that they're in a position of authority and like they've been heavily restri- respected for their whole career as as far as I can tell but then you'll see I, I watched a couple of with Fauci as a, an example I watched a couple of the I don't know if you know Ron Paul like some of the investigations into Fauci and, and just some of the questioning and some of the way it was answered I, I would end those interviews and I'm like oh, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of information that I want to know that you're being really, <laughs> really dodgy around. And like your information when it comes to the scientific literature is so much greater than mine will ever be. But just the, the, the it felt like a little bit of a sneaky, uh, maybe a, a politician's response to some of the big questions that I left going, ah, oh, now I don't know. Like now I'm not 100% mm. sure what to do. And I guess it's just, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's just I find it difficult to navigate between the, all right, like I know you know a lot, but are you telling me the truth? And I guess that's what we're saying is it, it comes with an element of trust with the limited amount of time. Some people are happy to go, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll lean on, on this particular guy. I think part of my part of my scepticism or frustration was a little bit just the, the black and white nature that it was dealt with here in Melbourne as well. It was very much mm. just like you either do it or you're this and you can't go to work. And I was like, hey. I, I know a lot of lovely people not like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's such a, as you say, it's nice to be able to uh, sit down and, and just chat through it without so much emotion flying around. And I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but especially here in Australia, I feel like the emotional charge of some of the conversations around this topic over the last couple of years have started to die down. And, and just being able to speak to people face-to-face and not through statuses or comment sections has been really beneficial, I find, just because people that I, I might have agreed with or completely disagreed with when you get him into a room and you have a conversation together very few of them are as bold and as confident myself included as what they are on a Facebook status and uh, yeah. I, that was one of the big takeaways for me getting back into rooms filled with people I was like ah oh, these people are lovely most of them <laughs> like a lot mm. of these people are, are very good people and yeah it's just nice to be able to watch some of the emotional charges dis- disappear from some of these conversations yeah, I think part of the difficulty is that some of the most influential bodies really undermine people's trust early on. So take, for instance, I think it was the CDC in the US that reversed their recommendations regarding masking quite early on. It all just adds to confusion. And also one thing that's worth adding to those comments about appealing to authority is that I think having panels of experts that come from different disciplines and maybe have some contrasting opinions and having them reach some consensus through negotiations and talks is generally better than putting the brunt of the load on one individual who might have really good intentions. Yeah but yeah. ultimately turns out to be wrong. So just ensuring right. there are some checks and balances in place. That's a really good point. That's a really good point, man. I told you that uh, we'd keep this to around 70 minutes because of the fact it's the start of your day and you've got plenty else on. In saying that, I could I could happily keep talking to you for another hour and a half because that time just it flew by and I, I really enjoyed the, the chat. Um, man, if you're interested, I'd, I'd love to... Uh, have you on again in a couple of months and we could even touch on some more of the areas that I thought we were going to talk about more, which was <laughs> your involvement in the studies of sleep and, um, and health and things like that. But obviously I'll, uh, 
I'll, I'll link your website for anyone who wants to you know get a little more information on, on the sleep and health and well-being because it's definitely a subject I'm I'm very interested to talk to you more about and, and an area that I, I really uh, I like your approach I was going to tell you early in the piece that you seem to have your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's really important in the world of health and um, wellness from not just going to the gym but making sure that you're getting your sleep and you're looking after your diet and you're getting the sunlight and um, I, I find a voice like yours really refreshing and, and very clear, man. So, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for everything you're bringing out to the world, and, and thanks more for for coming on the show for a chat. Thanks very much, mate. And yeah, definitely up for coming back for round two, and then we can talk about something that I actually know something about. <laughs> I had I had full intentions to talk to you about all of those things, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, it was a a really fun conversation, man. Thanks again. Pleasure. See you, everybody.